What a wonderful time to be able to worship the Lord this Sunday, church family. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you will remember, we, we have been walking through the first part of Revelation, and I shared last week after taking about 10 weeks to work through the revelation of Jesus in chapter 1, and, and then Jesus, uh, His specific message and words to the seven churches, which were both seven literal real churches of, of that day and age, but also in, in the issues that they uh, confronted very much represent and, and are found to be uh, the reality of, uh, of any church in any age. So we walked through those, and Jesus is charged to overcome. And, and then as we did that, we, we took a step a little bit more f- uh, further. And we picked up in Revelation 4, where, where John is caught up into heaven, and he sees this, uh, he sees God enthroned. And, and he hears the cry of heaven, and, and that, that moment of heavenly worship culminates as attention is drawn to God for His act as creator and ruler and sustainer of all creation. Now, when you get there, chapter 4, we really stopped halfway through on a cliffhanger. Chapter 4 goes with chapter 5, and, but, but we stop right there, and here's the reality. God is creator. He is ruler. He is sustainer. There is nothing wrong with God as creator of creation. But when you stop there, you realize there is a problem, that this God who is holy, who is righteous, who is eternal, who is creator, ruler, sustainer of all creation, the problem is not there. The problem is creation is broken and has fallen short, specifically the pinnacle of creation, human beings, image bearers of God, has fallen short of God. Scripture tells us is an act of rebellion against God and must give an answer. And it's in the midst of of that problem, in the midst of that moment, that the passage moves forward. And so I want you to look with me, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, we're going to pick up in verse 1. They've, they've just said, worthy are you, our, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and, and were created. And, and remember, God, you're worthy. And then the reality comes in that this creation is broken, that, that in this creation there is death and destruction, that in this creation creation, there is injustice and brutality, that in this creation there is gossip and slander, and we can go all down the line of this broken creation that stands guilty before the Almighty God. And here's what it says. He says, I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book or a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. So I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book, to open the scroll and to look into it. You see here, here, here's a situation uh, that that needs a solution. 
the brokenness of creation, God repraising you as creator, and then all of a sudden he sees that in God's hand, uh, your Bible may say book, it may say scroll, it's uh, same way, bo both are accurate translation. Uh, if you go with the imagery of scroll, though, it says there's a, there's a scroll in the hand of God. And John couldn't make out what was written on the scroll, but he could tell that the scroll was written front and back. The, every ounce of space that could be filled up was completely filled up with words. I put it to you simply. Uh, you ever, you ever uh, set your margins to, to slim and you, you fill up the whole piece of paper front and back? That's what he's describing. The scroll is filled up in front and back, meaning not just that there's a lot recorded, but, but there has, nothing has been left out. And he said there were words that were written, and the, and the tense of the verb were written is, is important because whatever's on this scroll was not in the process of being written, nor had it just been freshly penned. The tense of the verb describes something that was written long ago. The content and effects and reality of which remain unchanged and carry on forever and ever. And he said, this scroll that was written long ago, who's, who's left room for, uh, no, nothing has been left out, this scroll was written, it, it's got seven seals. Now, seals were important for uh, legal documents in the ancient world, no different than they are today, and the fact that it was sealed with seven seals indicates that it was sealed perfectly. Remember, seven's the number of perfection, divine. It was perfectly sealed. Those seals didn't just protect the words, but they were signs of authenticity. This is not some scroll. This is not a, a facsimile of a scroll. This is not uh, a kindergartner's poor attempt at copying the scroll. This is the very scroll. Now you say, what, what is this scroll? Well, I, we'll for the sake of time, we won't backtrack, but you find all throughout Scripture statements are made about various books, scrolls that are in God's heaven in His throne room. The books were opened. This scroll is nothing less than all of God's divine and sovereign plans for all the rest of human history. On this scroll is the solution for the brokenness of creation. On this scroll are the plans of how justice is brought against that which is wicked, about how, how reward is brought for those who are, who are righteous. Th this scroll contains the plans for how to fix creation and end human history in the right way. And so you understand when John sees this scroll which reflects plans that aren't happening by happens chance. God wrote them long ago. And there's not anything that involves them that God left out. He filled up every last spot of the scroll. A cry goes out. They did a thorough search in heaven. You can take it one of two ways, both of which are accurate. There was no supernatural angelic being who was found worthy to open the scroll. Not only that, there was no righteous saint who has died and has gone to heaven. There, there is no righteous saint who could open the scroll, not Gabriel, not Michael, not Elijah, not Moses. No one in heaven was found worthy to open the scroll. Not only that, but a search was done on all those presently living. John the Apostle wasn't worthy. Irenaeus and Polycarp, disciples, they weren't worthy. There was no one living that was worthy to open the scroll. They went under the earth. You can take it one of two ways or both. 
There is no fallen demonic power that is worthy, and there is no one who has died, no matter how great they were. There is no one who has died, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Gandhi. There is no one who has died who is worthy. And John understands the weight. Here, John, whose heart is so wrapped up in seeing the will of God brought forth, who is, who is seeing, he is so wrapped up and tied to what is there, he begins to weep profusely because this scroll represents redemption. This scroll represents the, the, the bringing about of God's plans. And if it remains closed, those plans will never be executed. And so he weeps. He is so tethered to the the will of God that it brings such disheartenment that no one is found worthy. But then it says this, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Literally, the tense of the Greek is cut it out right now. Stop. No more. Said, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah the one who fulfills prophecy from Genesis 49, the root of David, the one who fulfills prophecy from Isaiah 11, the, the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures around it and the elders, I saw a lamb standing permanently as if one who had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, and sent out into all the earth. And, and this one, he came and he took the book, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Here's what John hears and sees. First, he hears, he hears and he says, wait a minute, stop, John. Don't, don't give up hope. There is one who is worthy. The promised one, the Messiah, the, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the the one who has overcome, the one who has overcome sin, the one who has overcome death, the one who has paid the price, there is one who is worthy. And when John hears this, he looks, and all of a sudden, the very throne surrounded by the four living creatures and elders he's seen before, he now sees something he hadn't noticed before, the lamb. It says the lamb is standing before the throne. That language for standing implies that at some point the, language, the lamb took his stand and he remains standing forevermore. There's never a time where the lamb is not standing. The fact that he can stand before the throne is quite remarkable because the only one who can stand before the throne of God and remain standing is nothing less than God Himself. This lamb, though, wasn't just standing. It says, one who had been slain slaughtered, and, 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 the, and, and this is repeated. We'll see two more times in the language. Each time it's repeated, the language is such that describes something that happened in the past. This lamb was slain in the past, and the accomplishment of his death, the, the, the effects of his death, they remain and continue on forevermore. It's not just that he was slain, it's, it's that he was slain and what his slaying accomplished carries on forever. Says this lamb, he describes this lamb as having seven horns. Horns represent power. This lamb is one who is perfect in power, omnipotent. Seven eyes, eyes which represent knowledge. This lamb is perfect in knowledge, having 
omniscience. It says who, which represent the seven spirits of God, which we've seen as prior in Revelation, a reference to the Holy Spirit, whom he sends out into all the earth. You mean this lamb is the one who sends the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is the third person of the Trinity and equally God, just like Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit back in John 14, 15, and 16. And the fact that he sends the Spirit into all the earth implies this one is perfectly present, omnipresence. Wait a minute, this lamb then is perfectly God. And it says, and he came. He didn't just stand for all to look at, but he came. And it says he took that scroll. The language of taking means he, he took it and he keeps it forevermore. He executes it. He, he goes on to, to open it, to, to execute and bring about. And in a remarkable uh, sight, we see the Lamb whose will is obviously fully in line with the Father's because He takes the scroll to open it, to execute it. And by the way, church family, let's just be clear. We know who the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world is because many years prior, out on a dusty desert wilderness. This man walked by and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To be clear, the Lamb is Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man, who was slain on the cross on our behalf, but who rose forevermore, who was exalted by the Father as He ascended into heaven, and who alone is worthy and able and does take the scroll of God's will for humanity, of God's will for history, of God's plan to bring both justice and redemption, who takes the scroll and opens it to bring it about. And when He had taken the book, watch the scene, church family. When Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down. They, they prostrated themselves before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a song we didn't see in the previous chapter. It said, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, which is a, a way of saying the number was so great you can't quantify it. And I heard them saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the one who was slain to be exactly who he is. Worthy is the one who was slain to do what he is. Worthy is the one who was slain to receive whatever all of creation together down to one individual could possibly offer in worship. Worthy is the one who was slain. 
There is a cry of worship in heaven that now centers. We've seen heaven worship God Almighty for being holy, 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 and eternal, and, and creator, and sustainer, and ruler, and now there is a cry of praise that goes out to the one and only Lamb of God for being Redeemer. And the angels who, who don't get to take part in any aspect of redemption but who recognize the unbelievable glory of what you and I have been given in Christ, whom Peter says they wish they could just get a quick little glance through the door at what you and I have presently in Christ. The angels who don't even know redemption, they are so struck by the glory of what the Lamb has accomplished that, that in a number without, without description, without count, they now worship Jesus as worthy of all things for what He has accomplished, that He was slain for the sin of the world, that with His blood He purchased, He redeemed, He ransomed, He bought people, not just any people, but anybody who would believe from any tongue, nation, or tribe, and, and He doesn't just buy them out, but he, he, he makes them a people, a people of security in His kingdom, priests, which speaks of intimacy and holiness and a ministry before God, and they will rule, they will share as heirs in His inheritance. This is the worship of heaven, but the scene's not done yet. All of a sudden, it says, verse 13, every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. All of a sudden, the cry of heaven goes from praising the Lamb for his redemption and now all of creation. And the language of the text when it says all of creation implies all of creation. Bugs, fish, trees, clouds, men, women, boys and girls, saved, not saved. Now you'll notice a difference. All of creation, when all of creation joins in, they say worthy is the, the one on the throne and worthy is the Lamb. But they don't speak of redemption because not all of creation experiences redemption. Those of us in Christ, we will be part of both cries of praise. But we know it's clear that because of what Jesus has accomplished and because He wins, there will come a moment and day when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that He alone is Lord. This is the cry of praise. For those not in Christ, they can't praise Him for His redemption because they've not been redeemed, but they can admit the truth that He alone is worthy. And church family, make no mistake, here's, here's the central focus of the passage today. If, if last week we got brought in and we recognized that God is worthy alone of our worship, all of a sudden we see just a little bit further that, that at, at the center of the throne, at the center of the heavenly focus of worship is Jesus because of what He's done, that He alone is the one who can open the seals to, to bring about God's plans and, 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 and fix the brokenness of creation that we all see around us raging, to bring justice to the wicked, to bring reward to the, the righteous, those who are righteous only because of His grace and what He's done for them. That Jesus alone is worthy of worship. And understand what that means for us 
corporately as a congregation, down to each one of us who are in Christ individually, Jesus must be the center and the focus of the worship of our lives. He must be the center and the focus of of our worship. Why? Because He overcame. Church family, he, He conquered sin and death. He frees us from the power and the corruption and rebellion of sin, as well as the inevitability of sin's child, eternal death. You want to know freedom from rebellion against God? Jesus has it. You want to know freedom from the fear of of death and separation from God? Jesus has it. Are you in Christ? You don't have to fear those things anymore because he's overcome. Not only has he overcome, but how did he overcome? He was slain on our behalf. See, you and I just weren't kind of guilty of some bad things. You and I were in slavery and chains on a a, a seller's block. And no one could purchase us out. And Jesus paid that price. And he brought his blood. And he said, that one right there by name. I've paid their price. I'm going to pay the ransom payment and redeem, free them off that block, and I am purchasing them for my father's family. Because he was slain, those of us who found salvation in Christ, our sin is washed clean. We have been freed and bought out of slavery. We've been redeemed and restored to God, but don't miss this. The language which it says he, he purchased We've been ransomed, we've been redeemed, but it also means we are owned. You got one of two choices. You can either be in bondage to sin or you can be in freedom in Christ, but freedom in Christ is to be owned, belong to Christ. There's no, I'm free to do my own thing. The only way you can be free to do your own thing is if you're God and none of us are. You are either for sin or you are either for God. There's one of two options. You and I were bought with a price. We are not our own. It is not about us. It's all about Him. We worship Him because He was slain. We worshiped Him because He purchased us for, our, for, our, for God. We worship Him because He makes us a royal priesthood. You, you and I were once alienated and alone as sinners, and when He purchases us, He, he, he brings us into the kingdom where we're part of a family, where we're secure, safe, in a kingdom that cannot crumble, that that will outlast even all of this universe crumbling in fire and a new heaven and new earth being created. We're part of a kingdom. He says he bought us to be a kingdom, to be priests. It speaks to an intimacy and a, a, a fellowship, a ministry with God that the priests were the ones who who ministered in the holy of holies. Well, every believer in Christ has been made a priest. It says we will reign upon the earth. There will be an authority. He, he makes us a royal priesthood. We worship him because he alone can open the book and bring it to fulfillment. Jesus, Jesus is the sovereign Lord of history, church family. And as our world rages in chaos right now, 
There is only one, and He is in heaven standing before the Father who takes the scroll of how to bring it all to a righteous end, and He opens the seals. We worship Him because He alone is worthy. Oh, we worship Him because He is the only one who stands before the throne, which means all the things we saw last week, that God is glorious and holy and almighty and eternal and, and, and creator, sustainer, sovereign ruler, they're all true of Jesus. This is why we worship Him. But there is a danger. The danger is in many churches throughout our country today, some progressive, many conservative, many churches throughout our country today, some that are dead, some that are dying on their way to dead, and some that are living. In many churches that are, that are today, I could preach and say the same things up to this point in the sermon and get amens. Because there is a danger that we have made worship simply a verbal or mental acknowledgement. As long as I sing it in a song and say, yeah, Jesus is worthy. As long as I think that thought, I'm worshiping. We've made worship a positive emotional reaction. When pastor says Jesus is worthy, ooh, that makes me feel good. Never mind that my life doesn't actually proclaim He's worthy. Instead, my life actually proclaims that I'm worthy of Him doing what I want. You see, we, we, we can twist this. We can, we can worship ourselves in Jesus' name. We do this when we, we say we worship Jesus, but the Jesus we worship is a Jesus who is not according to who He says He is, but is according to our image and our opinions of how we want Him to be. We do this when we pursue our own goals and dreams, but, but we make sure to say, well, we prayed about it and God gave me peace, meaning I felt good. Never mind that some of our dreams, it's just simply not what God wants, but some of, some of our plans and dreams expressly deny what He's written in His Word. We do this when we take all of worship and church and we turn it into all about us. How dare the church put out spearmints rather than peppermints? The blood of Jesus is red, not green. Now, I'm making up a ridiculous analogy, but if you've been in church long, you know the ways that we fight about things that are nowhere found in the Word of God, and we do it in Jesus' name. That is worship of ourselves. We don't just worship ourselves in Jesus' name, but we can worship ourselves in spite of Jesus. When we see our relationship with God on the basis of, of my performance, my effort, how I'm doing, and I don't glory and boast and, and, and worship by being consumed in my mind with who Jesus is and what He's done on my behalf, I'm failing to worship Him. Instead, I'm worshiping me because I'm attempting, even though I've said I can't save myself, I need the grace of Jesus to save me. Now I'm trying to live it out all by my own power rather than His. There's so many ways we can worship ourselves in spite of Jesus, and it demands we remember today, church family, what worship really is. Worship is the humble response of both adoration and submission, or another way, affection and devotion. Or let me put another way, it is a humble response of both love and obedience 
to the initiative of God to reveal Himself. Worship never starts with us. It always starts with God. And how remarkable that God is worthy of our worship, but He's the one who makes the first step to reach out to us. And it's only possible to worship God inside a true, personal, redeemed, restored, bought with a price relationship with God. You don't You can't worship because of the family you were born into or because of the boxes you can check on the offering envelope. It's only possible to worship God if I have been truly saved by grace through faith. At some point, responding in repentance and faith to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I am indeed guilty, that Jesus is indeed God, that He indeed, fully God and fully man, paid the price for my sin, and I respond and say, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong, and I'm trusting you with it all. Only in that place is worship possible. Worship certainly involves our emotions, but it's not exclusively emotional. It should be the primary focus when we come together as a church. It should be the primary calling upon our lives every moment of day. It's important. It's important because He alone is worthy of our worship. And make no mistake, we all worship someone all the time. It's not like He's worthy, but I can just choose to worship no one. If you're worshiping no one, it likely means you're worshiping you. Worship shows us who we follow as well as determines who we follow. Worship will strengthen our faith, and it also reveals the depths of our faith. Our ability to overcome will be directly tied to the the reality and depth and trueness of our worship of Jesus. How do we worship? When we recognize God for who He is, we recognize Jesus for who He is at what He says. We, 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 devote, we, we respond to Him with a devotion where the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart are consumed. Let me just ask you simple this. How much time does who Jesus is and what He's done occupy your mental space in any given day? For most of us, it's probably not that much. Now, don't mistake, I'm not trying to make some massive thing where it's like you just sit and think about Jesus all day and somehow the dishes will get washed and the laundry will get done and and the mail will turn up inside your your house. Okay, let's not be ridiculous. My point is simply, but how much do we think about that next trip I want to take? That next thing I want to buy? What the news said is happening today. What new fear comes up? How often do those things fill our hearts, the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart versus who Jesus is and what He's done? How often when I seek to get alone and pursue God, do I do it thinking through how well I measure up versus on the overwhelming joy of the fact that I'm in Christ and He measures up because I don't. This is how we we worship. And when we do this, when, 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 this kind of, when this kind of devotion consumes the words of our mouth and the thoughts of, the thoughts of our mind, what it does is it, is it produces surrender. It produces surrender to where we remember and focus on who Jesus is and what He's done. We live in the goodness and greatness of, of who He is at His Word. We rejoice and boast in, in who He is because He is our hope We seek Him, we love Him, we know Him and follow Him, we we know Him according to His Word. All of this looks like worshiping Jesus. But let's be clear, if we endeavor as those saved by grace through faith to live lives 
that worship Jesus. We all in this room need to make sure we understand the reality of what that will mean. You see, there's going to come a point that Jesus will lead us out of the place we feel safe and secure. Could be the security of a job. If I follow Jesus, I'll lose the job. Or it could be the security of a home. If we follow Jesus, we're going to have to move. It, it could quite literally be if I follow Jesus, my life will be threatened. If we really follow Jesus, there's going to be times that Jesus leads us away from our preferences. Our preference may or may not be a problem. It's only a problem if we worship it. But there may be times Jesus leads us where we wouldn't prefer to go. Or Jesus leads us to stop doing something that's beloved and we always do, but it's because He wants us to do something new. Jesus will lead us out of our preferences, whether corporately or individually. Not only this, but Jesus will lead us out of places of our comfort. Maybe this is in sharing your faith or tithing or giving up an idol. Understand, church family, if we follow Jesus and are going to worship Him, He will lead us in ways like this. And the question is whether or not our response to His leading is one of worship, which declares He's worthy of my feeling in danger, He's worthy of me giving up my preference, He is worthy of me dying to my comfort, because He is the one who was slain, who purchased with His blood my life. Listen, if we do not worship Jesus in a life that is surrendered, then all the songs that we sing about Him being worthy, we just sang some, all the hands raised in worship and all the tears streaming down our, faith, our face are not worship but are bold-faced hypocrisy if we're honest. Jesus, you're worthy for me to act like it in song, but you're not worthy for me to surrender to you in life. If we sing that He is worthy, but then grovel and complain and bellyache and gossip and slander when He leads us outside of ourself, then understand we do not in fact believe He is worthy. What we're saying is you're worthy when I'm safe, when I have what I want and I feel comfortable, but when I don't, Jesus, I'm worthy of you bending your knee to me. And by the way, did you see in the text it says the lamb standing? He doesn't bend his knee to any of us. Now, this reality was made clear. I remember one of the first times in my relationship with Christ, this reality was made clear to me. When I was going into high school, and let me just be clear, kids and students, you'll get going into high school. Adults don't think that all of us get off because pastors use in a high school illustration. Because we do this same thing I'm about to describe in our grown-up world, too. But I remember one of the first times this was made clear. You see, in my life, there was a great idol of sports. It consumed my thinking. It drove my fears and worries. How well I performed in a game was the basis of whether or not I was confident before you or not, on the basis of whether I believed you should like me or not. Sports consumed everything. Now, make no mistake, I was having quiet times and praying, and I was even doing some ministry too. But sports was everything. And God, the Holy Spirit, had been softly whispering and convicting and prodding my heart. 
And there came a day where I had just finished reading the story of a martyr. And as I finished that story, I could hear very clearly, my heart was gripped by the Lord, and I could hear the Holy Spirit very clearly say, Wes, do you love me? Oh, Lord, I love you. Wes, do you love me? Oh, Lord, I love you. Wes, do you love me? Lord, I love you. Then if you love me, give it up. And understand, because I'm clearly telling you, this idol has grown so big, I'm going to remove it. If you don't give it up, you can read your Bible all day, you can pray all day, you can go up to church and raise your hand and sing the songs, but you don't love me. I could reinsert that for all of us with a different, do you worship me? We worship whom we love. And our worship should be driven by love. Do you, do you worship me? Listen, church family, I love one of my favorite things every week preaching, I love that we are a congregation where you feel free enough to amen and talk back. I love it. Most of my ministry, the only congregational participation I got are cell phones going off and, and teenagers talking to their neighbor in the middle of me looking at them. I am grateful for the way we affirm the Word of God. But if we can amen whatever is preached every week, but then go about our life as a court church corporately or our lives individually, complaining, belly aching, gossiping, slandering, all because of what He asks us to do as He leads us out of our perceived security, away from our own personal preferences and out of our comfort zone, and understand, as much as I love that we amen, we are not worshiping Jesus. And we have got to be a church that worships Jesus. A guest should walk in here and go, I don't know what I just encountered, but that was unlike anything because I encountered Jesus. Our lives ought to be bleeding off every day. People who go, I don't, un all I know is when, when I spent time around that person, wow, Jesus. And we'll only be that if we worship Him, church family. Understand, He is worthy of our all. There's no other option. There's no other box to check. It is all about Jesus, period. It's not about you is a great statement, but if we just say it's not about you, it's actually a way of understanding everything still in terms of me. Listen, it's not about me. Why? Because it is all about Jesus and He is worthy. And as we come to the table today and we examine ourselves, this is what we're examining. Is my life in worship of Him declaring He is worthy because as I come to the table, that's what I'm remembering. He is worthy because He is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world to purchase with His own blood men and women, boys and girls from every tongue, tribe, people in the world, to take them and make them a kingdom of priests to his, our God who will reign with him forever. That's good news. And that 
must be the posture of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we look to you. Jesus, very specifically, we look and we see there you are, the lamb who was slain, who is standing before the throne. You know what you're doing in this place. You know how you're moving and stirring. May our response be one of surrender and yes and obedience to you. You are worthy. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.